Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to this public lecture hosted by the Sociology Department at the LSE. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Eileen Barker, and also Connor Geerty, Professor of Human Rights Law at the LSE, and a member of the Board of Inform, who will say a few words in response to Eileen's talk. Eileen has a long and very distinguished association with the LSE. She graduated with a first-class honours degree in sociology from the school in 1970 and took up a lecturing post in the department that very same year. Before being promoted to senior lecturer in 1985, reader in 1990, and professor in 1992, both these latter posts were with special reference to the study of religion. Eileen obtained a PhD in 1984 for a thesis called A Study in the Sociology of Conversion. She was elected as a Fellow of the British Academy in 1998 and as a Fellow to the Academy of Social Scientists in 2016. Eileen's main research interest has been in cults, sects and new religious movements and in, since 1989 in changes in the religious situation in the post-communist countries of Eastern Europe. She is a prolific author with over 350 publications translated into 27 different languages, including 10 sole-authored and edited books, which include the award-winning The Making of a Mooney, Brainwashing or Choice, and New Religious Movements, A Practical Introduction. The study of Mooney's is, I think, a sociological classic. It has been used to teach the sociology of religion on courses worldwide, including the UK's Sociology A-Level, with extracts reproduced in countless textbooks. Having spent several years interviewing Unification Church members, Eileen rejects the simplistic notion that they have been brainwashed. I have not been persuaded that they are brainwashed zombies, she writes. Moonies are no more likely to stagnate into mindless robots than are their peers who travel to the city on the 8.23 each morning. It was given the Distinguished Book Award for 1985 by the Society for the Study of Religion. Among Eileen's many achievements, it is arguably the establishment of Inform in the late 1980s that stands out and that we are here to celebrate this evening. Inform is an educational charity which provides information about minority religions that is accurate, objective, and as up-to-date as possible. In 2000, Eileen was awarded an OBE for services to Inform. The core purpose of INFORM is to provide a common-sense starting point to cover what others have called cults, sects, new religious movements, non-conventional religions, alternative religions, spiritual or esoteric movements, and or self-religions, as well as new movements in established religions. The organization strongly echoes Eileen's earlier skeptical and measured conclusions about brainwashed Moonies. Parents or family members of anyone who has joined a religious group and finds Inform on the web will see the following text under a tab asking whether all <coughs> new religions are harmful. It says, simply because a religion is unfamiliar or new or different does not mean that it is necessarily a cause for concern. Research shows that much of the conventional wisdom about new movements is not always well-founded. Criminal, dangerous, or even antisocial behavior is by no means typical of all minority religions. And, of course, some mainstream traditional religions have been, and in some instances still are, responsible for appalling atrocities. 
To me, INFORM stands out as an example of how methodologically rigorous sociological research can be used to educate, inform and indeed benefit the public. And we all surely know that the rationale for INFORM is as strong and relevant today as it has ever been. Appropriately then, Eileen's lecture tonight is called Is God Really Dead? Why Belief Matters. So please give a warm welcome to Eileen Barker. Interesting to learn about myself. <laughs> when this title was um, circulated, I, I got several responses, and um, some, some of them um, got me a bit worried. One of them was from a member of a new religious movement who wrote at great length, saying, of course God isn't dead, and gave me several proofs to show that God was alive and well, and really I ought to make that clear to my audience. Um, the other one was from an academic who said, I'm glad to see you're bashing, soci uh, bashing sociology. No, sorry. Start again. I'm glad to see you're bashing religion. <laughs> so neither of those, of course, are true. This is not a theological lecture. It's a sociological talk. Or rather, it's an argument that religious and spiritual beliefs and practices play an important role in society. And a scholarly study of these beliefs and practices deserves to be an integral part of the social sciences. My motto this evening is that of LSE, rerum cognoscere causas, to know the cause of things. It may be that God is the cause of certain things, or it may not, or it may be the devil, or ghosts, or jinns, or deities, or deva, or bodhisattva, or kami. I don't know. None of us know in the sense that the social sciences can say we know. Sociology has to be... Oh, I'm guessing the wrong one. Sociology and the sociology of religion has to be methodologically agnostic. It may be the case or it may not, but we can't decide. The sociology of religion, to be more positive, <coughs> asks who believes what, under what circumstances, and with what consequences. It distinguishes between reportive definitions, to use John Hosper's term, and these are ones that are used by the people we're studying. It's what they mean by a particular thing. And this is more or less true that they do or they don't believe it. And this is different from stipulative definitions, which is what I mean by X, when the social scientist is saying, for my particular research, I mean this. And this is more or less useful. It doesn't claim truth or falsity. And it's independent, we hope, of what we hope to discover. Here's a reportive definition of a cult. A cult is a dangerous pseudo-religion with satanic overtones which is involved in financial rackets and political intrigue, indulges in unnatural sexual practices, abuses its children and women and uses irresistible and irreversible brainwashing techniques to exploit its recruits, frequently resorts to violence, performs numerous criminal activities and is likely to commit mass suicide. <laughs> that is somewhat different from my stipulative definition when I'm doing research. 
And that is that a new religious movement, and scholars of religion prefer that term because it hasn't got all these pejorative overtones, is a religion or spiritual group that consists predominantly of a first-generation membership. That's not the um, definition that everybody uses, but I find it useful. Also, if, say, I was studying the Aztecs, I wouldn't, as a sociologist, say this is an evil cult. I would say this is a group that engages in human sacrifice. Sociology of religion has to be value-free in that sense. However, value freedom is a meta-value. It's a value that I'm talking about now, that I believe all these things. Also, we can choose to study what we think is important according to our values. And we might hope that the results of our search will be useful and contribute towards implementing our values of a better world. But of course, things can go wrong. When napalm was invented, this was to help in medicine and a whole lot of good things. And those of us who are old enough to remember this picture, which was everywhere for a long time, showed the awful tragedy of America bombing the Vietnamese and their being burnt. A basic assumption that I'm making is that we can make better, that is, more effective decisions if these are based on accurate knowledge rather than on ignorance or misinformation. And this includes understanding possible consequences of the knowledge. Is God really dead? This brings up the secularization thesis, which was particularly popular at the middle to end of the last century. Brian Wilson was probably the best proponent, at least in my eyes, and the most convincing one of secularization, which he said is a process whereby religious thinking, practice, and institutions lose social significance. That was in 1966. Has the world secularized? Well, in some ways, especially in parts of Europe, <coughs> it has. And especially, of course, if we compare it to times like the medieval times when popes or priests or in other places, ayatollahs have reigned supreme. But it all depends on what's being measured. In Scandinavia, for example, nearly everybody belongs to the church. In that sense, it's very religious, but almost nobody attends them. But it continues, I would suggest, to play a highly significant role in places like the Middle East, but also in very different ways in the Americas, Africa, Europe, and Asia. In the UK and the USA, there's been a lot of concern recently that the nuns, not N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-S, that means people who say none when they're asked what religion they are, these have been increasing. The um, top blue line, doesn't look very blue there, but anyway, that's the nuns in the UK. And here they are in America, where they start from a lower baseline, so it looks more steep, but it's more surprising for the Americans. The nuns. Few of the nuns in the West identify as atheists. The number of atheists is very small compared to the growing number of nuns. And many of them contain some sort of what Lois Lee calls existential culture. And an examination of the nuns reinforces the perception that it's diversification which is a more useful approach 
to the study of religion today than secularization. This is a model that I find useful to think with, uh, but of course one could do this in a whole lot of ways, but showing some of the diversity that there is of religion today. These all intermingle. There are people going in and out and taking ideas from here and there the whole time. Starting with the traditional religions, they, of course, still exist and are in the majority. There's Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Sikhism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, etc. And there are also traditional religions that are combined. So we have the Jubus. Those are Jewish, sorry, Jewish Buddhists. And then we have the Buddhist Christianity and we have the Jew age in Israel. Next, fundamentalism. We've got the Orthodox Jews, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and here's a picture of um, Joe Jessup with his five wives, 46 children, and three, 239 grandchildren. Exhausting. Um, <laughs> Plymouth Brethren, Christian community, sometimes known as the Exclusive Brethren, they believe quite strongly in their version of the Bible, the Derby Bible. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe strongly in the fundaments of their Bible as, or their translation of the Bible. In fact, they believe so strongly that they were prepared to go to Auschwitz and die, as lots of them did during the Nazi regime. And unlike the Jews or the homosexuals or the gypsies, they could get out if they were prepared to salute the Nazi um, regime, but they didn't. More recently, they've been convicted for extremism in a Russian court, and they're now liquidated, that's their word. <coughs> this means that they can't practice, they're having their property confiscated, and if parents teach their children their faith, then they are committing some sort of criminal activity because they are extreme. Also, they claim that their religion is the best. I haven't, in nearly half a century of studying religious groups, found any person who will say their religion is not the best. Some say there are many ways, but nobody says that one is better than mine. And then, of course, there's ISIS as fundamentalist um, was Islam. Neither fundamentalism nor extremism is necessarily or even usually violent. Today, these terms are often used interchangeably. It's just grossly untrue. Extremism is a deviation from a norm. It might be a statistical or a moral norm, but it is decided by the society what the norm is, and these Norms can differ fundamentally according to time and place. Some people or religions are extremely kind and peaceful. I call myself an extreme moderate. Turning now to hard secularism, and this is keeping on the more fundamental side of my model. The new atheism, um, Mr. Dawkins, Professor Dawkins, is very religious-like in his mission. Um, that's one kind of growing atheism. 
He claims that all wars are based on religion, not politics or resources, and says Stalin and Mao's targeted killings of clergy doesn't count if you say, well, other people apart from religious people did it, because, he says, communism isn't really atheism. So Marxist, Maoist, Juchak Kimil Shunism, um, all these people are worshipping at his feet. And, of course, the grandson, our dear leader, Kim Jong-un, is quite important in the world today. Now I turn to apathetic secularism, which is arguably the only real secularism. These are people who, who don't believe in God. They don't think about it. This isn't part of their life. They're not concerned with it. They don't want to fight against it. They just get on with their lives without it. They may have some sort of functional alternative. Some of my family have this one. <laughs> they lost to Newcastle United yesterday. I don't know if they're in mourning. <clears throat> then there's what I call soft secularism. And that's could easily be called uh, soft religiosity as well. These people probably believe in God or, or some sort of God, perhaps, or something, something beyond the ordinary. They're very happy to, do what, to um, believe in what Grace David calls vicarious religion. That means, you know, you let the priests and people get on with it and find they're, they're, uh, it's an important enough role, but... It doesn't concern us. We might go to church occasionally. Um, so they're happy to see the Queen, Archbishop of Canterbury being crowned by Queen Elizabeth and things like that. Then we ask again, what about the nuns? Well, obviously the hard secularists would say nuns and the apathetic secularists would say nuns. But so would the soft secularism if they don't feel they belong to a particular religious tradition. And so would the spirituality people I'm about to talk about. And so would many of the new religious movements say they were none. And there are also an awful lot of nuns within the traditional religions. The only place where you don't find them is in fundamentalist religion. I don't know where I put the Sunday Assembly, which they call themselves a congregation for atheists, and they meet once a month up the road in Conway Hall. And then we've got the first agnostic church. It says, not knowing is half the battle. <laughs> then the Raelians, that's one of the UFO cults, that calls themselves an atheistic religion. Now the spirituality bit. I don't mean spiritualism. Um, I mean, or, or indeed, sort of some of the mysticisms and spirituality that you find in the traditional churches and other religions like, like Sufism. I'm talking about the new spirituality, which has sort of grown out of the new age. Like Findhorn up in the north of Scotland, where they have great cabbages, Glastonbury on May Day, where pagans gather. The Druids at Stonehenge. These sort of people. And I'm not going to go through the whole of this, but I think it's possible to make an ideal typical, that, that sort of sociologies for a kind of model that isn't necessarily reflecting the truth, but gives you some sort of way to distinguish and see how far 
on either side particular groups are for comparative purposes. In the religiosity of the book, the transcendent is seen as transcendent and one, usually. In spirituality, you see the divine as imminent, cosmic, pluralist, the divine spark within. The source for religion is without. Now, that's not to say it can't be within as well, but the stress is more out there. And for spirituality, it's more inside. Time is temporal and historical, with lineal, past, <coughs> present, and future, as opposed to eternal, ahistorical, cyclical, then, now, then, now, reincarnation. Organization, institutional, as opposed to networking or individualism, and so on. I, I, um, I don't want to go through it all, but I hope you get the idea there is a discernible difference between the two extremes, but of course people cross over in lots of different ways. Now I want to turn to the new religious movements or cults or sects. New religious movements, well, all religions were new religious movements at their inception, and I'm getting more and more interested in comparing early Christianity and other early groups in their first generation and there are a lot of similarities um, with our current new religious movements. Early Christianity and early Islam were new religions. There are often waves of new religious at particular times of change. Medieval Europe, the American Great Awakening, this 19th century sects like the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christadelphians, um, the Mormons, etc. In Japan, just after the Second World War, there was a great mushrooming of new religions. Masses of them appeared, having been suppressed in all sorts of forms. And there was the 1960s, 70s cults in the West. These came to people's notice largely through the media. And one big event in 1978 was the People's Temple um, in Jonestown, Guyana, where over 900 people committed suicide or were murdered in the Guyan jungle. Those pictures still keep appearing when people are talking about completely unrelated religions. Then there was Heaven's Gate, where they committed suicide in order to um, transcend to some other um, planet. Branch Davidians, Waco, uh, in 1993 when the FBI stormed the compound and all the children that they were meant to be saving were killed. Um, Shinrikyo setting off sarin gas in the underground. 9-11 with Al-Qaeda. ISIS or Daesh as we have now. But these represent only the tip of an iceberg. Literally thousands of alternative religions and spiritual communities have mushroomed throughout North America and Western Europe and Australasia and Japan, Africa and elsewhere. Informs got data on over 5,000 different religious organizations and over 1,000 of these have appeared or become visible since the Second World War and are presently active in this country. Some of them that are better known or not so well known now. Moon, who's known largely for the mass weddings that he held with literally thousands of couples being blessed together. David Berg of the Children of God, they're mainly known because at some point in their lives 
They went in for flirty fishing. These are hookers for Jesus who would sleep with somebody in order to show them how much Jesus loved them. Um, Prabhupada, who brought kind of Hinduism to the West. Hare Krishnas, we see dancing and chanting in the streets. Less now, but you can still see them. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, later called Osho and the Orange People, and his 97 Rolls Royces. Scientology, Sea Org. That's largely known because it has a certain proponent, a member, Tom Cruise, who defends it strongly. And also they have something called an E-meter, um, which you can't really see there, but that's a group of my students playing with the E-meter. Three truths about new religions. One, you can't generalize about them. They differ in every conceivable way. I used to offer my students a box of Smarties if they could come up with one characteristic, apart from being called a cult, that they all shared. And I never had to give away that box of Smarties. <laughs> also, there's no behavior, certainly no criminal behavior in new religions that can't be found in old religions. And also, you can't look at new religions in isolation from the rest of society. You've got to see them as part of society. Now, having said you can't generalize, I'm going to do that because I'm a sociologist. <laughs> and these are, wasn't that funny. <laughs> Some common characteristics. First of all, by definition, I'm calling them first generation. And this means that they're converts. And converts are usually far more enthusiastic than those born into their religion, sometimes quite fanatic. Secondly, they attract an atypical section of the general population. Sometimes in the past, it's been the oppressed, socially, politically, economically oppressed. The present wave of new religious movements, or 1970s onwards, have been mainly, not only, but mainly young, middle class, and white. There's usually a charismatic authority, somebody they think has a special grace, something very special about them, which give, they give power to this person to control a large part of their lives. He or she is unbound by rules or by tradition and therefore unpredictable and unaccountable. Next, they often, not always, but they often have a dichotomous worldview. This means that theologically they see God, Satan, morally good, bad, right, wrong, before, after, and socially them and us. Primary defining characteristic is whether you're one of us or them. That's their identity. Next, they change far more rapidly than, and radically than old religious movements. And this is both for internal and external reasons. For example, the children of God in the 1970s, average age, 23, no dependents, free to run around and bring everybody to Jesus throughout the world. 20 years later, they're the ones who did the flirty fishing and they didn't believe in contraception, so there were quite a few children. <laughs> and um, the ones who... Uh, oh, never... Uh, where have I got to? Sorry, going the wrong way. Uh, somebody likes one. Right. Um, so the, the ones who were 23 before are now older and more mature, but the average age is still 23. 
An external change that was very important um, was the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of religious freedom, at least for a short period, in Eastern Europe and Russia. Another very important one was the arrival of the Internet. When I, when I founded Inform, I, I wrote a book um, in 1989 about new religious movements, and there wasn't a single mention of the <coughs> Internet in it. It's changed radically because of the World Wide Web. Dissemination of knowledge, obviously, both favorable and critical, accurate and false. New religious movements, websites, they give information about themselves, their beliefs, their <coughs> practices, and they sell mugs, books, anything you like to think of. Other websites give negative information about them. They can both promote and undermine the authority of the leaders. This is because of, instead of this top-down authority which you normally have, you, and with no horizontal communication or limited horizontal communication, you get far more, not only between other people in your community, but people elsewhere and even former members who were very much other before. And also the World Wide Web hosts virtual religions. Some, most possibly, definitely, new religions fade away. But new, new religions keep appearing. And some of these, as I say, are virtual religions. Some are what are now called imagined religions, which means that you can't trace their origins to divine revelation, but to explicitly to some kind of human imagination. Jedi Knights, may the force be with you. Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. And these members are called Pastafarians. <laughs> and they are very important because they're testing whether you can wear your religious headgear, which is, of course, a calendar. And they've won quite a few cases for driving licenses and identity cards wearing their calendar. Elevationist Church of Cannabis. I joined that online. I've never actually been, but it looks pretty. <laughs> not going to admit it anyway. Another great growth is that of megachurches. Here's Pastor Sunday, who is from Nigeria, and this is in Kiev and Ukraine. And you'll notice that all the people behind him, his congregation, are all white. This is sometimes called reverse mission. People from countries where the West has gone and missionized are now coming back to the West to tell the Westerners that really they're slipping and they ought to be far more concerned about certain things, a lot of sexual things, for example. Um, Pastor Sunday wasn't particularly tied up on that. He was very charismatic. Well, he still is. Um, but I spent a day with him, and um, it was extraordinary to see the sort of reverse bit working. And then at the other extreme, you've got new religions that are very little more than a family, perhaps <coughs> two families, like the Westboro Baptist Church, and this you may have seen pictures of. They go and they demonstrate outside funerals of returning soldiers in America. And they're saying God hates fags. You can see there's Obama is the beast. And really very vile things they do. I spent a day with them. This is um, Fred Phelps, the leader of it. He died shortly afterwards. Not, I think, because I visited him. <laughs> but um, anyway... They were very nice people. They just believed these. Change. 
And the sixth thing I want to say is that they're usually treated with distrust and suspicion by the wider society. And that's for a lot of understandable reasons. Different people perceive more or less different versions of a single social reality. Sometimes we look at what's objectively exactly the same thing, yet we interpret it in different ways. This is a well-known one that psychologists use. Can you see the duck or can you see the rabbit? Or here's another one. Is it the old hag or is it the young lady? Sometimes we see the same thing, but we give it a different value. The real world out there may suggest, but it doesn't dictate the way we construct our images of it, particularly the social world. We tend to select what we perceive according to what we're interested in. And this means that there are some systematic differences between our different versions of reality, which means sociologists have something to do. For example, new religious movements, their interest is to show they've got the truth and get new converts, and so their picture of themselves selects in the good, but selects out the bad. They don't tell about the skeletons in the cupboard. Whereas the anti-cult movement is very concerned to control or even ban the movements, and their pictures select all the bad things, and they don't pay any attention to anything that might be considered good or normal. The media, of course, want to attract audiences, and we tend to like the novel, the shocking, or the exotic, rather than the ordinary or the everyday, so they oblige. Sociology of religion, on the other hand, is objective and contextualized. <laughs> it, I wish you'd stop laughing. <laughs> All the jokes about sociology. I know, that's what I meant. Um, they look at the normal and the unusual and they select out values and labeling, as I suggested earlier. Just to give two examples of what I have read recently, two ethnographic studies, which I really think are excellent. Annabelle Ng's Making of a Salafi Muslim Woman. Here, the very visible and the very strange is made, through her study, natural and understandable. On the other hand, Abby Day, with her Religious Lives of Older Women, takes the almost invisible taken for granted and makes them visible and special. And I think this is something that sociologists of religion, any sociologist, ought to do. It's kind of Monty Python, seeing the usual in the unusual and the unusual in the usual. C.P. Snow talked about two cultures. His were science and humanity. Are the two cultures between academia and the rest of society? Academia, has it impact? That's a big word now if you're applying for funds. We have reliable, unbased, relevant, up-to-date, contextualized information, or so we think. The rest of the world, out there, there are individuals, policymakers, civil servants, lawyers, police, media, clergy, new religious movements and teachers, and goodness knows what else. And there's a lot of fake news out there. Lots of people don't want to study them or don't think they're worth studying because they don't like them. And they just dismiss them as bad, rather like along the lines of, um, well, it's a cult, so it's bad. And I like Abraham Lincoln's quote. I don't know if he really said it, but it's often said that he did. I don't like that man. I must get to know him better, and I'd like to change that to, I don't like that religion. 
and I think you should get to know him better, it better. So impact, this is why I set up Inform, which is what uh, Nigel talked about, <coughs> trying to bridge the gap between academia and the rest of society, offering our knowledge to people for whom it might be useful. Inform founded 1988 with the support of the Home Office and mainstream churches. I've already told you it's got lots of information. Responds to over 10,000 inquiries um, since it started. They come from out, uh, overseas, and last year alone, we had 100 different religions asked about. We put on conferences, seminars, workshops, which members of the new religions, their opponents, relatives, academics, scholars, police, come. Publications, we've got a book series, leaflets, articles. The research staff are all experienced with higher degrees, and we facilitate meetings between estranged relatives. Now I want to turn to religion and its relationship with the rest of society. All these aspects and many more are related positively, negatively, one direction or the other, with religion. And I think we have to look at them all. And I want to finish just by giving you a whole lot of examples of some of the ways in which society and religion mix. First of all, why did Trump get elected? Well, if you're a conservative evangelical, it was very helpful for Trump. Whereas if you hadn't got any faith or another faith, it was less so. I think this shows that religion has got an effect. In China, it's very interesting. I, I spend two weeks most years <coughs> with the police in China, and they're very concerned about religion. Um, they have three kinds. Um, there's what they call the red, or what, sorry, Feng Gang Yang, who's um, a professor at Purdue University, calls the red market, which is the legal lot who are cyanized and owe their allegiance to the state. You've got the black market, which are the evil sects, or Xijiao, and they're all banned. There's lists of them. And then you've got the gray market, which is in between. And these are ambiguous. They practice quite often, but they can't engage in a whole lot of things that the red market can. Illegal religious activities include proselytizing, etc. Recently, you may have read, this is just the last few weeks, that the Vatican, the um, Pope, sacked this bishop from his position in the Catholic Grey movement and appointed instead bishops from the Red Movement, who owe their allegiance to the state rather than to Rome. There's quite a lot of discussion going on about that. They're chopping down all the churches, particularly those with steeples that belong to the Grey Movement, and even some that belong to the Red Movement if their steeple is too high. That's that church the next day. Sharia law... If you live under Sharia law in some conditions, not in all places, and you commit adultery, you could expect a few stones, perhaps. Of course, the West has its history of torture. The um, Inquisition 
And even today, the death sentence is given in lots of countries. Here's a priest giving last rites to a condemned prisoner in America. The Egyptian parliament is enacting a law to criminalize atheism. You can go to prison if you're discovered as an atheist. Of course, in a lot of countries, it's very dangerous to be an apostate. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, known as RIFRA, which was passed in America in 1993, decided that after all, a long sort of battle, Native Americans could smoke peyote, which is forbidden to the rest of the um, society. And this was one of the ways in which religion has got special privileges. As long as there's no compelling state interest why they should not do it, then they're allowed to do it if it's part of their religious practice. And this applies to a whole lot of things, ministerial exceptions, etc. Iraq and the Iran War, that was mainly about territory. But it was very much seen by the people who were fighting it as the Sunni against the Shia. And in Northern Ireland, the Troubles were often described as a conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants, and it had very, very little to do with religion. It's far easier to divide up economics, say, well, you'll get um, 75% and you'll get 25% or politics, so many members composed of the Parliament. But you can't say, well, I'll be 75% Catholic and 25% Protestant. So when things are defined, and often they're defined by leaders, this is your right, or this is what you must do for God, it becomes far more intransigent. Sex abuse and the cover-ups. <coughs> Catholic Church has received the most publicity, but the Church of England is discussing this at the moment. A lot of the new religions have had trouble with sex abuse. Though a lot of them are actually extraordinary in the safeguards that they're now in, um, instrumenting. Here's another, I don't know if you can see it, but it's about how each religious group says, reacts to abortion. And not surprisingly, the atheistic end of the table thinks abortion should be legal, whereas down Jehovah's Witnesses um, and some of the other more fundamentalist groups Christian groups um, think it should not. And I don't want to say whether it's right or wrong, it's just that it makes a difference what your beliefs are. Lots of medicine, health, healing is associated with religions. There are lots of religious hospitals. Seventh-day Adventists in particular have a lot. In South Africa, there's a group of children of God. These are the flirty fisher ones who don't do floaty fishing anymore, and they're now called the Family International. And they go to the black townships. I've stayed with them three times, and I'm really very impressed. They give teaching about AIDS, which is, of course, rampant in South Africa. They get food that's passed its sale-by date and deliver it to young people. They hold parties with clowns. They help people cultivate things for themselves, and they provide literacy classes. Catholic Church needs more exorcists due to urgent increase in demonic activity, priest says. This was, as you can see, just last month. And there are a lot of exorcists, and they're now having to learn far more how to separate the devil 
from mental health. And that's quite an interesting study. Jehovah's Witnesses, no blood transfusions. Um, but they have helped to develop a whole lot of medical alternatives to blood. We've got the problem at the moment about the vaccinations. Lots of people for religious reasons won't allow their children to be vaccinated. Here's the doctor saying, what's the government going to do about it? Food, diet. A lot of people object to halal and to kosher. The um, Houses of Parliament, I mean, ju just this last week, they decided they wouldn't serve kosher food because they didn't approve of the way the animals were killed. A lot of people say that Hinduism in general, but perhaps the Hare Krishna in particular with their numerous restaurants all over the world, the Govinda restaurants, um, selling vegetarian food have helped change something. When the Hare Krishna first came over in the 60s, everybody said, oh, very dangerous. They don't, they don't eat any meat. And now, of course, you think it's healthy not to be not eating meat. Clothes, a burqa ban, bans against crosses in certain situations. Sikhs, here's an exemption. They're allowed not to wear helmets. Recently, a student at Moscow State University was barred from taking an exam because he refused to remove his kippah. The Hare Krishna, to go back, they organize visits for schools to explain Hinduism so you can go and feed the cows or visit the temple or have a ride in the oxen cart or dress up in um, robes that are Indian. Education, faith schools, Church of England schools, in the past, may, most, of the churches, most of the schools have been Church of England, um, but also a large number of Catholics. But now this diversity is happening, and there are a lot more. So I'm in Orion's school. And some faith schools are treated with suspicion. The Department of Education has to decide whether they can get uh, official recognition or not. They're worried about social cohesion. Does it promote segregation or integration? Fundamental British values, which we all know are democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and mutual respect and tolerance for those of the different faiths and beliefs, and not if whether you know the length of a cricket pitch. And also the content of teaching, evolution or biblical creationism taught as science. Architecture. I don't know if any of you know Neesden, but this is not the normal Neesden architecture. <laughs> well, I could go on, but my time is up. And I would just like to end by saying, and I'll read this bit. This talk has tried to give a glimpse of the many, many ways in which religious and spiritual and fundamentalist atheistic beliefs play an important role in not only the lives of those who hold such beliefs, but for many, many aspects of contemporary society. It is an integral part of civil and sometimes uncivil society. And finally, I'd like to suggest that this is a very good reason why a school of the social sciences might wish to consider including some sociology of religion in its curriculum. <laughs> and perhaps it's also a good reason to host an organization like Inform. Thank you.
She's just trying to curry favour with the Roman Catholic on the panel. <laughs> I've spotted that. I grab you only again. Uh, I'm not going to just do hers again, because <laughs> I think it was pretty good. Uh, <clears throat> I've only got, don't worry, don't worry. Nigel's going to tell you about drinks, aren't you, Nigel, later on? Yes, yes. Uh, the drinks start at 8 o'clock, not half nine or anything. So I'm, uh, this is an evening to, uh, to celebrate uh, Eileen. Uh, and I've got a little, a little run-on part uh, right at the end. But it gives me a chance to uh, just uh, say what a fantastic academic she is and what a pleasure it has been to work for her and with her, for her in inform. And some of you may be feeling death imminent, the will not finalized. That last bit, that last bit makes available an opportunity to keep inform going, if I read it correctly. Uh, but I, I must tell you, I mean, before, I mean, she does have an advantage over the rest of us. You know, your dinner table, your dinner table. So what, what do you research? You know, the usual academic response. Has the person dozing before it's been completed? <laughs> With Eileen, and, and Nigel did it again at the start, cults, sects, and religious movements. Now, the word sect, the word sect has to be pronounced very precisely <laughs> to avoid the listener forming the view that she's a specialist in cults and sex. Uh, and I thought, uh, most of the talk, it was sex, <laughs> until I heard all about the flirty fishers and the hookers for Je Jesus. So she has an advantage over us in terms of the remit of your academic discipline, I must say. <coughs> I say enviously. Uh, it does an irony in inform, uh, in inform being so far ahead of its time that uh, it, it has anticipated uh, movements in uh, the educational sphere that are not as sympathetic to it as they ought to be. This impact thing, this is, in the parlance of modern academe, the model impact case study. Because intellectual work is brought to bear on it, and then it achieves this incredible set of outputs which have an immediate and direct impact on uh, on the general public and on policy. I've, I've never seen, uh, honestly, I've never seen anything quite as efficient in, in terms of impact. And we all have to have impact now. I'm supposed to be advising the government on the virtues of Brexit, which will be impact. Because if I said to them how marvelous Brexit is, uh, then I would have impact. But uh, isn't that right? Isn't that right? There's, impact is neutral. So, but this is benign impact. Now, I have no idea why I'm here, other than, other than <laughs> nor, nor if I may say so to you. Uh, <laughs> Other than I was at a dinner very late one evening and Eileen was sitting beside me and she, uh, you know, I was enjoying the dinner, you know. I mean, we have lots of Catholics here, you know, it was a good evening. It was a good evening. And uh, I agreed uh, very late on to be uh, at something on, on whatever she called it. I didn't remember the next morning what it was or what I'd said. And the email sending me the agenda and minutes of the forthcoming meeting of the trust which I joined came as something of a surprise through the pain of my, uh, of my mourning. And that's how I joined, if I joined, whatever it's called, informed. That's her method, by the way. Be very careful. <laughs> be very careful, those of you who are close to death, who've yet to make a will tonight. Be very careful. Now, I, I'm, gonna, I, I'm coming at this completely. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a human rights guy and a lawyer. Uh, well, I want to just unpick it for the seven or eight minutes left, very briefly, very briefly. Uh, is God dead is not the same question. And that's right. And your answer to the guy who said uh, the proofs and so on, this is a philosophical discussion. It's not. Is God dead would have led us down a completely different... I wouldn't have agreed to speak on is God 
dead. But is God really dead is a very interesting question indeed, because the word really does a tremendous amount of work, and it's deliberate, and it's there, and it's sociological. It's sociological. It's not bashing religion at all, because the reeling introduces the question of utility and of purpose, and I think that's very interesting. So I rephrase it. Uh, we don't know whether God is really dead unless we have a view about what God is for. So we have to work out what God is for, and then we know whether he's really dead, or she, really dead. So that's, uh, 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 Alan reminded us of uh, LSE's motto of know the cause of things, and that's an LSE, it's an LSE uh, project. Now, what is God for? It is a sociological thing, which takes us into society, which takes us into power. So we learn something almost immediately about God, which is that uh, God needs our corporeal presence, at, at least at some point, or, or it wouldn't have this sociological impact. So God needs Jesus or God needs Muhammad, definitely. But they need support. So it was very interesting about new religious movements. They don't last, and they don't last because they didn't have St. Paul, or they don't have the tremendous supportive armies of Muhammad. So the God that I'm talking about, and I'm more on the old religious movements, is a God that has not only got his or her spokesperson, but they have their battalions. So we know that. The Pauls, the Peters are needed for the Jesuses to survive, and the Jesuses are necessary for God to have tangible impact. Now this comes, this comes at a price, so far as religions are concerned. When we ask the question, what is God for? Over centuries of successful survival, we have these cultural assumptions that are doing damage, that are hard to shake off, are hard to shake off. Change management is not a strength in old religious movements. It's, it's not a strength. They're not great at flexibility. Uh, they're, not, they're not super at it. They've been around a while, and they're not quick to change. Uh, and uh, the Roman Catholics, I mean, it's a source of concern for some about uh, the extent to which it can wait out Pope Francis. Uh, and the Muslim, the problem is the Henry Kissinger problem about Europe, who do I call? What is the nature of that religion that allows us to engage with it? And it, this produces what I believe, I'm, I'm, I'm not a sociologist, uh, what I believe are bad things. And the main bad things they produce are, are, uh, is patriarchy. So there is a very strong contemporary critique of all religious movements, which actually I think is sustainable and not just a creature of its moment. Uh, I don't think the understanding that all religious movements are constructed out of ancient traditions of patriarchy and have continued, notwithstanding uh, changes in society, uh, out, of, out of an inability to change properly is a critique that will disappear. And I hope it doesn't disappear. Uh, and uh, there are other aspects of old religious movements that make you question in a negative way, what is God for? I don't believe, putting my cards on the table as a, as a, as a liberal Catholic, I don't believe God is, is for preventing gay marriage. I, I, and I don't think God is for various things that all religious movements claim that God is for. And I think all religious movements have been saved by the value of hypocrisy and double standards, actually. I think all religious movements have needed, certainly the ones I know a little bit about, have needed people not to take their rules seriously or their rules would reveal themselves as unwarrantably unpopular. Uh, 
I was, grew up in the middle of Ireland, and we had a parish priest, a fantastic man, and he disregarded the church's rulings on sexuality, took no action against people who were living there in alleged sin, and, and he kept the, the show on the road when a determined commitment to the rules would have lost him his congregation. He also had pop stars sing on Christmas Eve. It was fantastic. We had one pop star in my hometown called Larry Cunningham, and he was brought in on Christmas Day. Uh, so God is for entertainment. God is for <laughs> entertainment. I, I'm almost beginning to wind up. I mean, I'm almost beginning to wind up. Uh, that word almost is doing quite a lot of work in that sentence. Uh, we've heard from Eileen uh, an answer to the question, what is God for? And it was good to see the pictures up towards the end because it is undeniable that new and old religious movements do practical good work in the field of social justice. So we know that. We saw the hospitals. And we know, uh, we see that Harry Krishna giving all the free food to people at LSE every day, uh, every day. Uh, they've not been persuaded to provide free drink for the reception, have they, Ali? No. <laughs> there are limits. There are limits to philanthropy. They've also, and we saw this as well, they've also provided, uh, in my opinion, immense contributions in the field of education. Immense contributions. Uh, faith schools uh, have sometimes been absolutely fantastic. I, I declare, I've been a governor at religiously based faith schools, and I think that where I was, a f they, they are fantastic tools of social mobility and they provide an amazing learning atmosphere, as long as they don't lapse into uh, partisanship and sectarianism, of course. But also, and uh, I think not unimportantly, uh, God is for death management. You know, God is for death management. Uh, it's a very, very important thing when you are dying to recover what you are about and to somehow or other understand what is happening to you. And many people choose the language of their faith in order to do that, including many of these nuns might well embrace it. And, and there is nothing disgraceful about that, nothing disgraceful at all. There's something brave about somebody who doesn't do it, but equally, it's something to be admired in somebody who reaches back into their culture and declares a commitment as they leave this life, and at a time we never speak about. Religious people are very good on it. But religion, what is God for, is more than that, is more than that. Uh, I, this is my... Uh, minute theory, uh, and it's based on a brilliant book by, called The Ethical Project by Philip Kitcher and other writers like Pascal Boyer, that uh, religion provided a vital uh, structure of understanding at a certain point in culture which made it possible to control the worst instincts of people and to manage the good instincts and formalize it in a set of rules, uh, what uh, Boyer calls commitment gadgets, and what Philip Kitcher calls normative guidance. I think that's really, really important. It got us to understand the, the value of decency and of dignity and of generosity and of compassion. I would say the singular contribution of the old religious movements that have survived has been a universality and an empathy and an openness to the other. And I think these are very valuable. Uh, we, we may not need the religions that helped us maintain them, but they're very valuable sources of what we think of as decent about our lives, in my opinion. Now, to some extent, they've been taken over by other matters. Reason, uh, as it's understood by uh, uh, the crusading uh, atheist old prophet Dawkins, uh, whom a parish priest uh, at the church I used to go to said he was a classic Old Testament uh, prophet, which is exactly what he is, uh, would, would call uh, rational. I think his version of reason is extremely narrow, 
but reason appears to have taken over, and human rights, my thing, I'm a professor of human rights law, has, has become a sort of new form of ethical guider, new normative commitment, new gadget. And uh, one of the interesting things is how human rights relates to religion. And it's a very interesting one to look at, actually. Human rights broadly, in the shape of the European Court of Human Rights, is, is, is not obstructive about displays of religion by the state as long as they are not oppressive. But equally, human rights law allows you to control expressions of religious affiliation in the name of secular society. Uh, that can produce what I believe to be monstrous opinions of the type that upheld the ban on the burqa in France. Uh, uh, totally unnecessary, in my opinion, restriction on a person's right of uh, religious expression. Final points. Uh, final points. Post-2001 and 2008, mainly 2001, uh, we need to think about uh, an answer to what got us far, which takes us down a couple of paths which are the wrong paths, and a third path which I think is the right path. Uh, first of all, uh, I think, and, and you see this with the new religious movements, there is a danger... Not, not in fundamentalism. I, I'm a great believer in fundamentalism. If you believe something, what the heck does it mean to, to say you half, you, half, you half believe it? I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a rationalist error. Uh, and, and also, I, I don't like uh, calling somebody an extremist because they really believe what they believe. I don't, uh, those are, uh, I think, inappropriate words. But uh, fanatic, I think, is an appropriate word. Fanatic... Is, is a person, maybe a religious conviction, who's, uh, who's, who, who, who's incapable of any level of proportionality or understanding about the impact of his or her ideas on the wider world. And one of the things about the new religious movements, I think there is a risk of fanaticism producing real harm. And uh, we have types of harm we could discuss, but the ones on the board clearly uh, are, are in a harm. You know, the killings of all these people that gas attacks, mass suicides, and so on. It seems to me uh, one of the fears is what is God for? Underpinning fanaticism? No, we have to be careful. Uh, there's dangers in that. We must resist and fight fanaticism while we embrace and celebrate non-fanatical fundamentalism and non-fanatical extremism. Secondly, what is God for? Another thing we must avoid is the instrumentalization of God for human hatred, and we've seen that too. So there is an extraordinary way in which there is so much passion and hatred in people, and they are looking for means of instrumentalizing that, of explaining it, and then of justifying action. And you find it in all of the established religions, uh, most obviously with the disastrous attacks of 11 September 2001, but also with the so-called Christian pastor who delights in the burning of the Koran, or who is uh, playing with the public to secure an audience for what is, in fact, in the old term, good old-fashioned hatred. And we must be careful of God being instrumentalized in that way, too. Uh, thirdly, uh, and, and finally, and finally, uh, the way I think religion should be understood today, and I think this applies to new religious movements and all religious movements and echoes uh, a remarkable uh, speech which got uh, Rowan Williams into a lot of trouble. And he came to LSE to the Center for the Study of Human Rights shortly after it and was received here with a tremendous degree of warmth 
uh, where people were prepared to hear what he had to say rather than rely on the Daily Mail's version of what he had to say, uh, which is that subject to basic, and I would of course say this, human rights controls, these schools should not be able to preach hatred, uh, they should not be rooted in patriarchy, subject to basic human rights controls, uh, a kind of floor of human rights universality which we demand, God can generate institutions which take a shape as faith institutions which are actually functioning as uh, dikes against the waters of hatred. And they can actually operate against uh, the fanaticism and the hatred that functions under those two other rival versions of what God is for. And you see it all the time. You see it in the social work we talked about in the education, but you see it. In, in, in remarkably moments like that time where that dreadful, disturbed man tried to kill those people, Muslim people, and it's the Muslim leader who stops him being attacked. You see that in the ways in which churches are the front line in preaching, uh, in preaching restraint and who do not see any contradiction between their fundamentalism and extremism on the one hand and human compassion on the other. And in, in a world... Uh, which is populist, which seems to me a kind of cult thing, actually. Some of the criteria seem to fit with it. And which is uh, searching for angry scapegoats. Uh, civil society uh, needs all the uh, resources it can get. And uh, ironically, given its origins uh, as, as non-religious, civil society uh, needs religion very much at the present time. We all need religions of the third type. And so I think what God is for now and why religion matters is to remind us of the better parts of our nature to invoke what I you was brought up to believe was the good angel who would fight off the bad angel on my shoulder and get me to do good. Maybe not sophisticated, maybe not up to the Eileen Barker LSE test with all the concentration on cults and sects, but it will do me as a guide to better conduct. Thank you very much. Uh, as Connor mentioned, there's a drink reception on the fifth floor at 8 o'clock, so we've got about uh, 18 minutes of questions. So uh, some takers, one there. Uh, yep, so the gentleman at the back there. There's a microphone coming. Oh, thank you. Uh, Professor Barker, greatly enjoyed your talk. Uh, you mentioned that uh, we should uh, prefer knowledge over ignorance. Uh, and in relation to that, uh, I'd like your comment on uh, whether what we need is knowledge of the past, knowledge of the present, <laughs> and using those two things to try to give us some knowledge of the future. And I'd also like your comment on the apophatic uh, theological traditions which suggest, which suggest that uh, God being hidden from us is a good thing. I, um, I won't answer the last question because I'm a sociologist um, for the reasons I tried to give you. The first question, yes, we should certainly study history in order, I think, to understand the present. And, of course, we have to understand the present. I, I prefer talking and listening to people to sitting in the library, so uh, my, my data are usually um, contemporary people. 
But I, I do think history <coughs> is incredibly important, as in as anthropology, looking at different societies. I'm dubious about prophesizing for the future. People who do that nearly always get egg on their face. And I don't want egg on my face. I prefer eating it. Um, I do think, however, we can say, if you do such and such, then in the past it has, or in the present, it has had this consequence. Or if you don't do such and such, then something else might happen. But human beings change. They're not, the social sciences are, are not like the physical sciences. I, I um, said I, I was president of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion in my presidential address. It was called the Scientific Study of Religion. You must be joking. <laughs> um, but I ended with, if it is a joke, it's a very serious joke. And I think... There are some things we can do, but there are some things we just cannot do because people change, because the situation is changing the whole time. So the circumstances are different, and one reacts differently in different circumstances. Some of these changes will be social. Some of them will be nuclear bomb, um, warm, what's the phrase? Holocaust? No, earth warming. Or climate change. Climate climate change. change, yes. But it could be a war, it could be Trump taking over instead of Hillary Clinton. All these are different and can't be predicted or are often predicted wrong. But that doesn't mean to say we can't do anything. We can do something, but there's always maybe. Are you... Yeah, I'm just looking to try to ensure a diverse body of questioners. Um, okay, yeah, there's, uh, the, the most vigorous waving comes from that one. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, first of all, let me declare myself, I am firmly atheist. Um, now, I was surprised when you were very clear that Inform did accept funding from organized churches, from, from old, older mainstream churches. Do you not think you're uh, at risk of making value judgments there in saying, well, old religion is good, new religion is a bit iffy? No. <laughs> Next question. I I can answer that at slightly greater length. But the Church of England, which has been our main supporter, (coughs) had a bit of money from the Catholic, but not for a long time, and we've had some from the Methodists. They have never interfered with anything we said, or indeed has the government, which has been our main funder. Um, we, We don't try and tell them what is right or wrong, or we don't try and advise them. We just try and give information. And at the time when I set up Inform, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Bob Runcie, I I knew slightly, and he was very supportive, and he said, we really need someone, because it will be very useful for the Church of England. And um, we we don't (coughs) accept any money from any of the groups that we're asked questions about. We, We don't get asked questions about the Church of England. If we were, we would send them to Church House, because they know a bit more about it sometimes. Um, So I really don't think that it has said that we are 
But in fact, usually the argument is the other way round, that I, I'm a cult lover, um, except from some of the cults who think I'm an anti-cultist. So I don't know what the Church of England thinks, but they've found us quite useful. But what they do with that, we, we have no say in. Okay, thank you very much. I, yeah, I'll, can we take? Let's take. Um, can we take a couple at a time, just to save mm -hmm. some? Mm -hmm. Yep. So we get it. So yes, you please, and then with the cap. Uh, thank you. I'm thinking that uh, saying there are no atheists on battlefields, or no atheists in the trenches, no atheists in foxholes. Do you think it's very important the environment when knowledge is gathered and recorded? I ask you, especially in situations of danger, war, uh, crime, a person's uh, belief or not believing is influenced greatly by that, isn't it? Do you think it's very important to the context in which you gather the information? Is it the pampered West? Is it a war situation elsewhere where people believe or don't believe and people do change according to whether they're in danger? I've talked a lot to people who are or have, well, not a lot, but quite a bit to people who are and have been in danger. And I don't think I would generalize. I, I know some people quite happily die atheists. They don't expect anything after their death. That's it. Now, a lot of people will want something, and as Connor said, a lot of the nuns certainly do. They, they, they say they think there is something. Um, but everybody doesn't. And I, I know atheists who get very irritated to say, well, you really believe. And um, the answer is, no, I don't. And I, th I think people don't believe. Not everybody. A few of them are sort of hard atheists. Some are just agnostics. They don't know, like sociologists. Um, and... I don't know, but I, I, I admit there are certain situations in which people are more likely to have faith, but I'm not entirely sure that the battlefront is there. I think there's got to be something that is developed, and if there isn't, um, I, I think that the seed would fall on barren ground. Thank you. Uh, I'm tempted to say that if anyone really believed that a God was on their side, it's difficult to explain why they'd be cowering in a foxhole. Uh, but uh, actually, my question relates to uh, some of your previous comments about uh, science and the science of religion. There seems to be at least one echelon of academia where God, at least of the personal variety, might, you might say is actually quite dead, and that's at the upper echelons of scientific achievement. The National Academy of Sciences in the United States is 98%, uh, or sorry, 94% non-believing in the personal God. I think the Royal Society is around 98%. Do you pay much attention in your work to the growing body of literature on the psychology of religion, the neuroscientific correlates, the genetic correlates? What do you, what do you think of that <coughs> research, and how much can it inform your subject, if at all? I'm very interested in some of the cognitive neurological stuff that's coming out. And when I go to the American Academy of Religion, I always go to their sessions. But they can't explain why there's a war. They can't explain the differences. And I'm interested in the differences. I mean, there has to be a potential, and they're useful. I mean, I'm talking about the sort of basic psychologists, not, not the uh, neurologists. 
um, not, not the social psychologists who acknowledge difference because they're looking at different people, whereas our bodies are roughly the same. There has to be a potential for us to fight wars, to do good, to do bad, to do this, that, or the other thing. And it's a useful part of the knowledge of the whole. But personally, I'm interested in why individuals, as they are, behave in one way rather than another, and the social situation and how they affect the social situation, questions of power, authority, their birth, um, how they've been brought up, their culture... (coughs) Things like that, which I don't think um, these people can answer. But they've got other questions, and good luck to them. There's a question at the back. Yeah. Harriet Crabtree. Hello down there, Eileen. Um, I I would like to offer a brief reflection. Where are you? I'm up in the uh, up up here. I would say in the gods, but anyway. Um, Next to the person with the red. And and I have a reflection and a question. The the reflection is that one of the things that makes Inform extremely important and very interesting is that it has both done work under your direction, which is about bridging academia and wider society, but it's also both put out as much accurate information as it can about a very vexed topic and also carried out a function that I would say has a moral impulse that goes beyond mere education insofar as the work to bring families into engagement with the people who have joined these groups goes beyond the straightforward uh, sharing of information or making information available. And that is an interesting factor, and it would be <coughs> fascinating if you have the time to hear your comments on whether you, how you see that role, where you go beyond what one might call the purely academic um, position. The second uh, part is a question and this goes back to your picture of Trump. I think Trump is an inevitable now on, on PowerPoints or slides. The fake Only one. news. Well, yes, but one is enough. Um, that was fake the, news. The, the, the context of, of operating in academia and writing about a topic and teaching about a topic of this kind is difficult enough even when people trusted the media and trusted what they read and I would be very interested to hear your reflections uh, and and possibly those of your colleagues but particularly your reflections on how it has changed your working environment, what do you think the impact of um, falsified information is on the work that you do and how it affects the hill that you climb in educating and helping people. Thank you. Can I have three more hours? The <laughs> um, first one about the families. Yes, uh, we don't have time to do as much of this as we'd like it in form. Um, but I have on, oh, scores of occasions help to facilitate, that's why I use the word facilitate, um, families meeting, getting together. Sometimes after they haven't, well, one case, they hadn't seen each other for 60 years because the group had said, no, he had left, and he was now 70-odd. I'm not sure if that's quite right, but anyway, he was an old man. And um, eventually the, the family what was left of it, agreed to meet him. Other occasions, and quite often they meet in my kitchen. (laughs) Um, 
it, it's very difficult <coughs> to push people into doing things. It, when I started, I, why, why I did the study on brainwashing, um, because everybody was saying there's no reason why people should join the Moonies or unificationists, um, except that they must be brainwashed. You couldn't understand it. And that's because of that, that gave them an excuse to deprogram people. That is, capture them, illegally kidnap them, and lock them up until they agreed that they had renounced their faith or they managed to escape. And eventually some of them would say, yes, I have and had, and were very uncomfortable because they hadn't actually worked out the reason why they joined, because they joined for a reason, not just because they'd been brainwashed, usually. Um, it's not to say that movements don't put pressure on, they certainly do, but so do evangelical Christians. Um, now there's far more family reconciliation, and the anti-cultists who did that are almost out of a job in the West. They still go on doing it in Japan. And so the motivation behind my work, my PhD, was very much <coughs> trying to get families to be able to talk to each other and hear each other. And it, it's difficult. I remember one occasion when I was talking to a woman whose son had joined a movement, and she was going, yes, and I was trying to explain why this, um, her, her son kept talking about Adam and Eve and all sorts of things like that. So I tried to explain this, and she was nodding. And then after a bit, she said, you sound just like them. <laughs> I'd lost. That was quite a big lesson. Mm. Um, you've got to be very careful. What? And I always tell people with a meeting in my kitchen, don't talk about religion. Talk <laughs> about the cat or something. Because they all want to show that they're right, and they'll take different verses, or they'll say that's all rubbish or what have you. What was the second question? Oh, about Trump. Fake news. What? Whether you felt you had overstepped what might be viewed as a purely academic boundary, because you're, in effect, doing incredibly important reconciliation work. But you've kind of answered that by talking about its importance. The second was about fake news distortion and the impact on your work as an academic. You've got a minute. That, that's a struggle. <laughs> a continuing struggle. Wikipedia. Um... People use Wikipedia, and sometimes it's very useful for certain things. And there are a whole lot of anti-cultists and cultists who are putting stuff on the website, and they're very selective in the sort of way I tried to suggest. And I really think that if people want to know, they, t they tend to go for the bit that they want. And, it really has made an enormous difference and in some ways presenting us with a bigger challenge because people think, oh, it's okay, I'll just go out there. Uh, it, it, it's a problem. Uh, I'll take one very short question. Does anyone want to self-nominate? They've got the shortest question in the room. Yes, please. <laughs> and then we'll, and a short answer. Thank you. Sir. Well, I went to a talk recently um, where they discovered that when you put a brain into the fMRI machine, uh, somebody who believes strongly has a very calm, uh, small area of the brain that lights up, uh, whereas somebody who doesn't believe has a very disordered, chaotic brain pattern. And... Um, 
you know, so obviously belief offers you some rest and peace in this world. And I would propose the idea that you say uh, (coughs) cult members are not brainwashed. And I would suggest that they're not brainwashed. In fact, if they are, we're all brainwashed because we all look to some type of um, definitive um, something to calm our restless minds. And in that sense, religion can take the form of... uh, traditional religion, or um, lots of other things you can use to calm your mind, and in that sense, uh, shouldn't be so stuck up about it. I like Mozart. (laughs) And on that note, thank you very much, Eileen. (laughs)